common sense is not so common, is it? I think uh, I think we often notice the the lack of common sense that is out there. We we see it really easily when when other people lack common sense. We we notice it when they are uh, not taking care of their uh, yard or taking care of their things or they're driving uh, in ways that are are uh, uh, keep us from driving the way that we would like to drive. You know, they lack common sense. We see it in the checkout aisle. You know, just why, why can't people just do things right? Why can't they just do it where, the way that it obviously ought to be? We notice the lack of common sense in other people. We often don't recognize our own lack of common sense, our own insensibility, and our own uh, lack of reasonableness. When we look at other people, we see what's wrong, but, but look, think, think about yourself. You know, many people who are Christians and, and people who call themselves Christians often do things that are, uh, when it comes to the Christian life, are insensible and, and unreasonable. I, I can't tell you how many times when I've, when I've talked to people, people, uh, as being a pastor, and I've, I've talked to people who have tried to, to reason and to justify and to make sense out of the way that they are living. And still call themselves Christians. They're, they're being unfaithful in their marriages and they're not disciplining their children and they're mismanaging their money and they are, uh, engaging in all kinds of, of wicked activities and, and giving themselves to, to, uh, addictive and intoxicating substances and they will try to justify and reason their way and try to convince themselves and me that the way that they are living is the right way. It's a lack, it's a lack of common sense. They are not being sensible. They are not being reasonable. The Bible has a way of breaking down and breaking through those false arguments. It is by saying that you cannot love God and love the world. You cannot have communion with Jesus Christ and communion with idols. So it says to us, it doesn't make any sense. It's not reasonable. It's not fitting that you would have any kind of association with these things and call yourself a Christian. If you're going to, if you're going to be a Christian, eventually your marriage and family are going to change. Eventually your relationship to money and to entertainment is going to change. Eventually your, your way of living is going to change. And so what I hope you'll see today is that we must flee idolatry because we cannot have communion with idols and communion with Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles uh, today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to start in verse 14. And what I want you to see first is the relationship between self-control and idolatry. The relationship between self-control and idolatry. First Corinthians 10, and read verse 14 with me. This is what it says. I'll read it slow because there's only one verse. Okay, so. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, if you've been here over the past uh, several weeks, uh, hopefully one of the things that you've been able to notice is that 
chapters 8 through 10 is one long sustained argument. And we've been breaking up into pieces because it would be one really long sermon if we did it all at once, okay? And so uh, most people are not, not far six-hour-long sermons. So, so we're, we're kind of breaking it down. But what I hope that you're able to do week, week by week is I want you to try and put the pieces together. Don't, don't think of these as uh, the passages that we've looked at or the sermons that we've preached out of, the, out of chapters 8 through 10 as detached from one another. The giving up of one's rights, the, the, connect, the, the necessity of self-control, and now we get into idolatry. They are all connected. Now then, if you haven't been here, though, uh, don't worry. I'm going to bring you up to speed. So look back at chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9. You may have to flip a page. It may just be on the opposite page. Look at 1 Corinthians 9 and read verses 24 through 27 with me. This is what it says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul's point there is self-control is a necessary part of living the Christian life. It requires self-discipline, self-control, self-denial. And when you look in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, which we're not going to read, but I'm just going to summarize that for you. He gives the example of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, that generation, they turned from God to idolatry. They they lacked self-control. And those who lacked self-control did not enter into the promised land. God judged them in the wilderness. And so his message to us is, hey, if you lack lack self-control, you're not going to endure all the way to the end. You're not going to make it all the way to the end. So it's a warning there. There's this connection between self-control. Now then, now then, pick up at verse 14. He says, say it again. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you, you want to know, lots of times when we, when we hear about idolatry, uh, if maybe you're, you're fresh, you're new to the Bible, maybe idolatry sounds like something that is really, really foreign. Like we're talking about images and idols, and, and we don't see people bow down to images and idols very much anymore. Uh, or even if you are familiar with, with maybe how we talk about idols in the Christian life, uh, you might not really understand how to take what the Bible teaches about idols and apply it. But, but I think I, I want to help you because what I want you to see is, is that how, how do we identify what are the idols in our lives? They are the things that cause us to lose self-control. So think about it this way. Think about, think about when you're shopping and you're impulse buying. The lack of th- this covetousness and this greed and this desire that you lack control over. That, that's helping you. You're starting to understand what, what is idolatry. Uh, when you find yourself uh, taken over in some ways by addictive and intoxicating substances, now, now you're beginning to understand what, what, is, what is an idol. It is those things that cause me to lose self-control. 
There are things that I, that I, that I can't control myself. Do you find it difficult to give up forms of entertainment that are really not valid or reasonable forms of amusement? Or really, you are just simply using forms of amusement to keep yourself from doing what you ought to be doing in many cases. Times when it's not right for leisure or recreation. You lose that self-control. You're not able to discipline your body. And so you lose self-control. You're, you're not able to, to hold yourself back and, and, and cause yourself and control yourself and discipline yourself to do what you ought to do. The other way that we recognize it is that when our idols are threatened, we lose self-control. So let's say your idol is comfort or security or ease. When that's threatened, we call it being frustrated. And I need to vent, which is calling a sin by a sweet name. In fact, you are angry. You are sinfully angry. Because someone has gone up to your idol, that thing that you bow down to, that thing that you love, that you are unwilling to give up, and they, they are threatening it. Or, what do we call it? We call it, we, we want to talk about being concerned, or, you know, I just, I just can't hardly get over this, you know what the Bible calls that. We call it, we call sins by sweet names. The Bible calls it anxiety and worry, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself commanded us, do not worry. But, but something is threatening our idol. Something is threatening, threatening to, to take something that we are, we are holding on to. Brothers, we're starting to see what it looks like, idolatry looks like in our lives. When we recognize those things that we lack self-control. And, and if you're having a hard time, diagnosing it in yourself, that's why you need other Christians in your life to, so that they can help you diagnose it. They can help you see the idols in your life. That's why you need to come under the preaching of God's word week after week is so that you will begin to see your idols. Now then, how does Paul tell us to deal with idolatry? Flee. And the thing is, is that we think, we, the, the addict always thinks that they can give up whenever they want to. They're, they're not really addicted. They can, they can quit whenever they want to. What the world calls addiction is what the Bible calls idolatry. It is, it is this thing, it is this object that has a, a grip on you that you cannot give up. You think that you can quit. The, the truth is, is that you're not, you're not that strong. And you need to recognize that you're not that strong. One of the problems in Corinth is that they think that they're strong. They think that they're, they're knowing. They think that they're wise. They think that they're mature. We should not, the, the wise, the, the, those who are truly wise and truly holy are not those who think that they are strong. They are those who are, know that they are weak. They are those who know that they need to get away from idolatry. That those things that they are, that cause them to lose self-control, those are things that they need to stay away from. Those are things that they need to, to uh, give up in their lives. And so you see this connection here between self-control and idolatry. Brothers and sisters, let us flee idolatry. There are, there are things in our lives that do not fit with being a Christian. We get away from those things. Now, then the next thing I want you to see is the connection, the relationship between communion and idolatry. Communion and idolatry. Look at verses 15 through 17. Paul says, 
I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now then, verse 15, what he's talking about is is he's making an appeal to common sense. And I think as, 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 as the passage develops, you're going to see, like, they're really not using common sense. They're really being unreasonable and uh, insensible. He says, says, I, I'm appealing to your common sense. I'm speaking as to sensible people. And then he says, when we partake of the, the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the cup and of the bread, we are participating in Jesus Christ. Don't you, don't you realize that? Now then, he's, he's making an analogy between the way that we participate in the Lord's Supper and their participation in idol worship. So in order to understand the, the connection that he's making between communion, between participation in Christ in the Lord's Supper and idolatry, you have to understand what it means to participate in the Lord's Supper. So let me talk about first because of, of when we live, the, the historical period that we live in, the, the things that have happened in church history, and because of the context that we live in where, where so many people in, in, our, in our particular area are, are go to and, and are members of the Roman Catholic Church, we need to explain what participation in the Lord's Supper does not mean. First of all, uh, the, the bread and, and the wine do not become the body, the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, again, let's, let's think sensibly. Let's think reasonably. When Jesus held out the bread and said, this is my body, and held out the cup and said, this is my blood, while he's sitting there with his disciples, do you think that he, is it reasonable to think that he was holding out his, his actual physical body and blood? Uh, in First Peter, in 1 Peter 1, when, when Peter says that we were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, do you, do you think it's sensible to think that he is speaking in a literal, physical way? That all of us have actually had some of, of Jesus' blood sprinkled on us. Or in Matthew 16, do you think it, do you think it is, is right to think of Jesus building the church on a literal rock. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Is he, is he speaking about a literal physical rock? I think we have to recognize that the Bible uses metaphors and uses figurative and symbolic language. It, it's just, fa- frankly, it is sensible and reasonable to think that, that Jesus is presenting the bread and the cup as symbols of his body and his blood. So Jesus is not physically present at the Lord's table. Now then, having said what he's not, does, does that mean that Jesus is completely absent from the Lord's table? Now I think uh, one of the things that, that uh, growing up as a free church Protestant in, in, a, in a Baptist church, uh, often it was, it was very emphasized that this is only symbolic, it is only a memorial, uh, both things that, that I think are true, that these are, this is a symbol, this is a, in memory of what Jesus Christ has done. But it's explained in such a way that, that Jesus is, Jesus had, nothing is happening here, okay? Don't look up here in the bread and the cup because no, there is nothing to see up here. 
No, we, we believe that Jesus is present with us by his spirit when we gather together and he's present with us all the time by his spirit empowering us through life and he's, he's present with us when we gather together for prayer. But I'll tell you one place that Jesus is not present. He's not present at the Lord's Supper. Jesus is not here. Well, that does not, that does not fit with what, with what Paul is saying here. The language that he is using is that word that is translated participation is a word that you, that, uh, in the original language you might be familiar with. It's, it's koinonia, a word that is often translated as fellowship or, or in the King James Version is translated as communion. He's talking about having, having a, a sense of fellowship with Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. So how does that happen? Now, now again, we need to make it clear how that, how that doesn't happen first. It doesn't happen in a mechanical or magical way, the way that is taught in the Roman Catholic Church, an official Roman Catholic doctrine. That is uh, what, what's called ex opere operato. That is uh, in the work itself, in the performance of, the, of the, what they call the sacraments, those things actually take effect in the Christian life. So it doesn't matter if you have faith, when you receive it, it actually works regardless of the spiritual, the spiritual place or the spiritual uh, characteristics of the person who receives it. That is, it's, it's just a, a magic, it, it is in some ways like a magic peel or a dispenser of grace and you come and take it and it doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter if you are believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior or not. You're just, you're just receiving this dispensary of grace. You're just, it's like, uh, sometimes when people take a lot of pills, they have, they have the, the little Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday little boxes and they just pop open the box and they, they take their, they take their peel. Well, in a lot of ways, that way of thinking about the Lord's Supper, or of anything that happens in the church is just popping, I pop it open, I pop it in, and, and there it, it, I'm, I'm getting grace. That is, that is not the way that the scriptures teach that we receive, that we are nourished, or that we are benefited, or that we are built up in the Christian life. We do, genu- we do genuinely have a fellowship with Jesus Christ when we take the Lord's Supper, and we, do, we are genuinely built up. But it is only those who approach in faith and, and believe in what the bread and the cup symbolize. That is, when you come and you take the bread and you take the cup and you are believing that Jesus' death was for you, that he gave his body and his blood for you, you are built up. You, you do grow in the Christian life. Think of it this way. Another way to think of it. In chapter 11, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper as a proclamation of Jesus' death. So when we come each week, we believe that when we receive God's word, when, when we hear God's word and we believe the message that we are, we are transformed inwardly, that we are built up, that we grow as Christians. So that is, that is something that happens through hearing. Well, the, the giving of the bread, the receiving of the bread and the receiving of the cup is, is a receiving of the proclamation of Jesus' death. And when we receive it in faith, we are built up. It is, it is what one uh, ancient theologian called a visible word. The word of God, when we hear it preached in various ways, goes in through our ears. When, when we take the, the bread and the cup and we receive it, we, we receive it and we, we taste it and we touch it. 
And I think it's really helpful that when we come week by week and we hear God's word, uh, that we are hearing the gospel explained in many, many ways. And every week as we come and we take the Lord's Supper, we are having uh, the, the very essence of the gospel proclaimed to us every single time we come to church, every time we, we gather. That's the message. And so I want you to think about that. Consider that when you come forward and you take the, the blood, you take the, the bread and you take the cup, these represent the bread and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you receive it in faith, you are built up by believing that Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus is saying to you every week, I died for you. And that builds us spiritually. The first time I heard this, I, I had, uh, I had grown up and it had been so ingrained in me that it was, it was only a memorial and it was merely a symbol and it was something that was taken uh, very infrequently or rarely. Uh, and when it was, it was not explained and it was, it was almost something that was added on at the end of the service. I hope that you don't think that way. When you take the bread and you take the cup, the gospel is being preached to you again. By Jesus. This is the meal that Jesus gave us. And so take that and believe it. Now then, next I want you to see, look look at verse 17. This is Paul's application. So, So this is what it means to participate. We're having communion or fellowship or participation in Jesus' death when we take the bread and the cup. He says, because there is one bread. By speaking about one bread, he means Jesus Christ. So in this whole context of talking about idolatry, he's saying there's only one way to know God. You know that. We preach that. In the bread and the cup, it is demonstrated to you there is only one way to know God. There is only one way of salvation. There is one bread. And we, we all, we are one body. What Jesus Christ did in his death was that he purchased a people for himself. He purchased sinners for himself. He died in the place of sinners so that we might be saved. Now then, we're, we're all one body. This is what I want you to focus on. Get your, uh, a few weeks ago when we were in our, in our uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life study, we talked about worship as, as focusing. What do we focus on? When we, when we come together for the bread and the cup, let us focus on the death of Jesus Christ and the fact that we are one body who are all partakers or participants or in communion or in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We rejoice to receive it together because we are all partakers. Or think of it this way, we, we all have, we are all beneficiaries We all have the benefits of Jesus' death when we receive it in faith. So remember that. What do we focus on? What do you think? Don't go through the motions. Don't go through the motions as if it were some some meaningless ritual, which I I hope we don't think of it as a meaningless ritual that works whether we have faith or not, nor do I think that we should think of it as a meaningless ritual that does not, this does not have some power that God is working in us by faith. But instead, trusting that Jesus Christ has given us, has presented to us the gospel himself. It is his word and it is his meal. And we believe it. We receive it. 
Now then, having seen what it looks like to have participation in Christ, that's the analogy that Paul is using for why we do not participate in idol worship. So the next thing I want you to see is the, the, the connection and the relationship between demons and idolatry. Demons and idolatry. Look at verses 18 through 22. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He says first in verse 18, he connects it to, uh, literally, it is the people of Israel according to the flesh. That, that is to distinguish it from, uh, from the church or, or from those believing Jews. So, so he's talking about just what they're doing. What are they doing when they go into the temple and they have this sacrifice? Well, they are hoping, think of it in terms of benefits. They are hoping to benefit from this sacrifice. They want to be participants in it. They want to, they want, they are, they are hoping that what is pictured here in this sacrifice is the, the washing away and the removal of their sins. So think about what's happening there. Now then, think about what you are doing when you go into the idol's temple. Now, Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, those gods that they bow down to, are those really other gods? No, there's only one God. The creator of heaven and earth. Those, those gods are no, those gods are no gods at all. And is he, he's saying like, is it, is it having anything to do with the food? I mean, is the food and somehow, do, is, is the food somehow associated with these gods? Is it connected with these gods? Like if I, like if I, I buy some food and it's accidentally, maybe I didn't even know about it, but it, but I bought some food and it had been offered to an idol. I just bought it because it was cheap. Is it, is it somehow tainted? Is it, is it going to affect me? And, and, and Paul is like, no, no, the, those gods are not real. And those gods do not have any, the, those so-called gods do not have any power over food. At the same time, at the same time, Louis says, he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay, think of it this way. He's trying to, this very same words, uh, there are a couple of things that that, that that says, okay? Number one, it confirms that something spiritual is happening when we take the Lord's Supper. Same terminology, talking about being participants in the Lord's Supper. It also confirms that when you participate in idol worship, something, something spiritual is happening. Now then, here is the part where Paul is trying to get them to think sensibly, to think reasonably. You are going into an idol's temple. You are eating food that has been offered to idols. And you are thinking that because you have this special wisdom or this special knowledge or you're especially strong, that it's not affecting you. That it doesn't do anything. It doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Are you crazy? That, that's, that's the sense. You, you are senseless. You are out of your mind. What is wrong with you? You're going and participating in idol worship. Now then, when we look at that, we think, those, 
they, they, they're so, they're crazy. They're, they're nuts. How could they possibly, how could they possibly think that what they are doing is okay? How could they think that it is possible that a Christian would go into an idol's temple and participate in idol worship? How could that possibly happen? Now I want you to think about your past. Could be this past week. Could be five years ago, ten years ago. Is there not something that you have done since you began to profess that you yourself are a Christian? Is there not something that you have done that you look back on now and you're absolutely shocked that you did it? What was wrong with me? What was I thinking then? It is, it is absolutely insensible and unreasonable. It is unfitting that anybody who would call themselves a Christian would be involved in this. But that's what I was involved in. And now what we need to do is examine ourselves now. The, the way that you conduct and organize your family life. Is there anything with the way that you live out your, in your marriage and your family that is unfitting of a Christian? You're, you're a Christian. How could you be doing this? Consider your entertainment choices. Really? If Jesus saw me watching this, if Jesus heard me listening to this, is that in any way fitting? Does that, does that make sense at all? If Jesus saw the way that I managed my money, is that in any way fit? Like, like would, would, G, would, would I think that a Christian would really spend money on this? You know, we, we, we're often patronizing toward people who were, who were lived a long time ago. Oh, they, they, they don't know all the things that we know now. Human nature is the same. Human nature is the same. We, we are doing things that are completely unreasonable and insensible and unfitting for Christians to do. And Paul's trying to break through, shine some light into your mind so that you can have some common sense and know that these are things that you need to, be, need to be done with. Things that you need to change. So he says there, he says there in verse, uh, verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If you're a Christian, you're going to change. You can't be a Christian and do this. Not permanently. Not continually. You're going to change. It's going to change. Now then again, it's really easy for us to think of this as, as something that is out there that has to do with idols. But I want you to flip over in your Bibles to 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Very similar phrasing. Only this time it doesn't have to do with idolatry. It has to do with the world. So look at verse, uh, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. It says, Do not love 
the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So think about it in terms of, you think about it in terms of world religions. If a Muslim comes to Christ, they cannot do what is called syncretization. That is the, the combining of religions together. Jesus does not mix with other religions. So if a, if a Muslim comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they come out of Islam. And you would think that that would not be controversial. If you go to certain missions context, that's controversial. Even though common sense says, well, obviously, but... People do not always exercise common sense, do they? Exhibit A, all right. So uh, so doesn't always work that way. Person comes out of Hindu. They're gonna come out, they, they come to Christ out of, out of Hinduism. They're gonna, stop, they're gonna stop living as a Hindu. Same thing with a Western Christian. A Western Christian is not going to try and combine Western uh, Christianity with Eastern mysticism either. So we can't, we can't combine these things. But then if we think about what John says, neither are we going to try and combine the things that the world loves with Christianity either. The world is driven by covetousness and lust and greed. The quest for the next amusement and the next high. We can't love the world and love God. And interestingly enough, does anybody know how 1 John ends? The whole, the whole book of 1 John, the epistle, he, he talks in there about not believing false teachers. He talks about not loving the world. He talks about loving your brother and sister. He never mentions idol worship until the end. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why, why does he talk about it that way? Because those things that control us, those things that dominate us, those things that have a grip on us, that's the world. That's demonic. That's idolatrous. And those are things that we need to loosen their grip. We need to loosen our grip of those things, and we need to loosen their grip on us. Let's give up those things. Now, Paul finishes with a clear warning in verse 21. And 22, he says there, and you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Uh, already, he's talked about how we should not test the Lord. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. There he's talking about, shall we provoke the, the God to jealousy? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I, I think if you... Uh, maybe I could talk to you about this after after the service, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all gracious to forgive sins. Like there's nothing that you could do against any of them that would that would keep you from being saved. God God is ready to forgive your sins, but both the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all talked about as as judging people as well. We all have instances in the Scripture of each person of the Trinity bringing judgment on those who say, hey, I'm going to take the name of, of Christ and I'm going to blaspheme it by doing these things that are unfitting for a Christian to do. 
There's a warning there. Don't test the Lord. Don't try and see how close you can get to idolatry and still not commit idolatry. Don't see how close you can get to, to sin and not sin. Don't test the Lord. Don't presume upon his grace. Don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. He is a loving and forgiving and merciful God to everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ. But guess what? You are not stronger than him. The Corinthians, one of the things that they thought about, chapter 8 talked about how those with, with stronger consciences, that is, they, they thought of them as, at themselves as strong. Looking out over the, uh, and, and Paul had encouraged them to give up their rights for the sake of their weaker brothers. But their problem is, is that they were thinking of themselves, we're strong. We're strong. We have knowledge. We can get invited to an idol's temple. We can go and participate in idol worship, and it's not going to affect us. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything. And Paul says, you may think you're strong. Are you stronger than God? It's kind of a ridiculous little question, isn't it? Can I just imagine like a little kid, are you stronger than God? You know, that, that, that would. But we think that we are so strong. We think that we are so wise. The one who comes into God's kingdom is, comes like a little child. One who is weak, one who is dependent. I want you to leave here feeling weaker than when you came in. Because you are weak. And you need to rely upon a strong God who keeps you from evil. Who gives you, who, who will never test you beyond your abilities. I want you to think even here at the end. As we take the bread and the cup. Here's strength. Jesus was strong on the cross for those who would trust in him, for those who would turn from their sins. But he was not strong for those who would stay in their own strength. You must give up your confidence in your own strength and put your confidence in the strength of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And please grant that we would not uh, that we would not be foolish and we would not be insensible and we would not be unreasonable but that we would know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners and gave us a meal to remember that and that when we receive it we are participants in his death please grant that we would trust in Jesus body broken for us that we would trust in his blood spilled for us we would hear the word and your spirit would bring it home to our hearts so that we would abandon our idolatrous behavior, our insensible and unreasonable behavior, that we would abandon all that is unfitting. More and more, Lord, please grant that we would have the strength to overcome sin in our lives. We would rely not upon our own strength, but we would rely upon the strength of your spirit. And by the Spirit, we will put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we would abandon worldliness and idolatry. Please expose our sins, not so that we might be condemned, but so that we might be forgiven. And we might overcome all that is, all that is 
evil and sinful, that we might give up those things, that we might put off our old habits and put on those new habits, those new practices, those new characteristics that characterize, that fit the one who calls themselves, those who call themselves Christians. Help us to trust Christ and be transformed into his likeness. Amen. I have to say a lot here at the end because Paul has said it. When we come forward, we all come together as a people, as a people who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we remember what Jesus did for us. And here, symbolized in the bread and in the cup, is the symbol of Jesus' death. But when you come, don't take it empty. Don't take it unworthily. But if you're a baptized believer in faithful fellowship with a local church, I want you to come forward and take it in faith believing that Jesus Christ gave himself for you.